0: Thank you, Pastor Dan. Uh, Thank you, uh, Kathy, for sharing uh, Psalm 71 that actually ties in very nicely with today's lesson because it is so important for us to remember what God has done, not just for ourselves, but to share it with others. Remembering is very important. Remember that. And have any of you ever forgotten something just this morning, I was loading up the car, and I'm like, oh no, I forgot my bag inside, so sometimes we forget small things. And so I had to go back in and you know, get my bag with my sermon notes in it, and I got that out, so thankfully, I remembered that part. Well, sometimes we also forget more important things, or emotional things, or moral things. Just this morning, I was laying in bed, And Lily comes into our room going, mama, mama, dad, 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 dad. And I'm just like, oh, I've gotten her every day this week. And I got up twice during the night to put her back in bed. And so I think I have the moral high ground. And I go, Lindsay, would you please get Lily? Well, what I forgot to take into account was that maybe my wife had gotten up twice as much as me during the night to take care of her. And so I had forgotten to be mindful and to be patient. So we can forget small things. We can forget moral things. And we can forget big things too. I remember this This is a story of forgetfulness that will never escape me, especially if I keep sharing it during sermons. But when we released our first album, The Home That He Has Promised, Um, We wanted to plan a big concert. I released these albums with another worship leader named Jared Kane, and we wanted to do a concert at his church. And I'm looking at the schedule. We released the album in July, and we did a concert here. And then I'm looking at August. I'm like, oh, hey, you know, August uh, 19th. August 19th, I don't have anything on my calendar. And I say, hey, Lindsay, uh, we're going to do a concert at Jared's church on August 19th. We don't have anything planned that day. And she goes, Oh really? Dan, when did you get married? <laughs> I had forgotten our anniversary and had scheduled a concert for that day. next year, Jared did the same thing, um, although he did it on purpose and with his wife's permission and so I think the short short story of these illustrations is that we can be forgetful about all types of things and also that I have a very gracious wife. Today's scripture is a reminder that we need to remember. And if we don't remember, we are going to lose the joy of the gospel. So today we are gonna go into Mark chapter 8 Mark chapter 8, and we're going to be going from verses 1 to 13. Let's read the text. This is Mark chapter 8. "'During those days another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, "'I have compassion for these people. "'They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. "'If I send them home hungry, they will collapse on the way.' because some of them have come a long distance. His disciples answered, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? How many loaves do you have? Jesus asked. Seven, they replied. He told the crowd to sit down on the ground. When he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people, and they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks for them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. Afterward, the disciples picked up seven basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. About 4,000 were present after he had sent them away. He got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, why does this generation ask for a sign? Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given to it. Then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. This is the word of God. And now let's pray that we would understand it. Father, thank you for preserving your word for us, for gathering your family, the church. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would work in our lives right here and right now, opening up this text to us that we might understand what you are trying to communicate to us. And I pray that you would give me words to communicate your will, That which is from you would be remembered, and that which is from Dan would be forgotten. So, Lord, guide us in understanding your word, and may we remember your marvelous deeds. Amen. Okay, now just a quick recap, because if you've been paying attention throughout our studies in the series of Mark, you will have noticed that there are some similarities between this section and Mark chapter 6 through 7. Hasn't Jesus already fed the 5,000? Hasn't Jesus already had a conflict with the Pharisees? Hasn't Jesus already had to follow up with his disciples and teach them what's actually going on? This is a section of deja vu. And why would we include the less impressive miracle of feeding the 4,000 if we already have the feeding of the 5,000. Well, Jesus might be trying to hammer home a point for his disciples. And one of the things that we need to see to see that point is also the difference in the crowds. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, He's at home with Jews. And when he is done feeding the 5,000, they collect 12 basketfuls of bread. Ah, one for each tribe. But when we come over here, Jesus is returning to the Decapolis. Perhaps you may remember um, just last week we heard from mark 7:31 mark 7 verse 31 then jesus left the vicinity of tyre and went through sidon down to the sea of galilee and into the region of the decapolis okay the decapolis is a group of loosely connected city states Um, historians are going to debate whether they had uh, formal government agreements amongst them all or if they're just loosely connected. But these are Hellenistic cities, a very mixed pot of who lives there. But primarily, you're going to be looking at Gentiles. Okay, so Jesus has entered Gentile territory and is now gonna feed the 4,000 Gentiles. Well, how in the world did those 4,000 Gentiles get over there? Maybe they heard about the feeding of the 5,000. Or, if we remember Mark chapter five, looking back at Mark chapter five, verse 20, we see this. In Mark chapter five, I'm actually going to start in verse 18, this was when Jesus cast out legion, the demon that was in the man uh, in the tombs, and Jesus cast out legion and sends him into the pigs, and the pigs go running off the cliff. And we read this. Uh, the crowds send Jesus away after that, but then we read this as the previously possessed man, the now healed man, comes to Jesus wanting to go with him. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your own people and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. And then verse 20, so the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him And all the people were amazed. Maybe we could say at least 4,000 people were amazed. And so when they hear that Jesus is back in the region of the Decapolis, all of these amazed people who have heard the testimony of the demon-possessed man come out to meet Jesus. And when these Gentiles come out to meet Jesus, Jesus has an amazing response. He doesn't look at them. He he could have looked at them and said, hey, I'm here for the Jews. Instead, he looks at them. And then in verse 2 of Mark chapter 8, we read this, this profound statement. Jesus says of the crowd, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. The testimony of a demon-possessed man has spread all throughout the Decapolis. People are coming from all over and gathering to Jesus. And Jesus, instead of keeping the gospel contained to just one nation, one group of people, he says, no, I have compassion on them. And he has compassion for them for more than just physical bread, but he is providing a way for them, even the Gentiles, to enter the kingdom of God. And I want us to see, too, that these Gentiles are exhibiting great Faith. If we remember, when Jesus goes to his hometown, he is a prophet without honor. He can only do a few minor healings, and he is amazed by their lack of faith. But then, here, we have 4,000 people, mostly Gentiles, who have stayed with him beyond the point that they can get home. These people know that they do not have food. I myself am keenly aware when I do not have food. And they are no different. They can look in their bag and they can say, "Oop, I don't have enough bread to get home. But they trust Jesus and they want to hear his teaching so they stay with him. And maybe a few of them have heard about the feeding of the 5,000. And so they're like, nope. no. Jesus has got this. He's going to feed us. But you know who doesn't get it? Jesus' disciples. Take a look at verse four. Um, Verse three first. If I send them away hungry, they will collapse on the way because some of them have come a long distance. And so the disciples who were there with him during the feeding of the 5,000 now come and say, But where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? The disciples have forgotten. And we are so quick to forget too. They have seen Jesus feed the 5,000, and they're out there like, oh man, he fed 5,000 people, but if he fed 5,000 people, can he feed 4,000 people? Most of us are going, yes, yes, he can. The disciples just don't get it. They haven't latched on to who Jesus is. And Jesus turns this around on them. And this is something, this is a small detail that I love to see between these two passages. When Jesus feeds the 5,000, a little boy from the crowd comes up to him and gives him the loaves and the fish. And Jesus feeds the 5,000 from what was brought from the crowd. But here, as he's in the Decapolis, in this Gentile territory, he does not take from them to feed the crowd. Instead, he looks to his Jewish disciples and says, how many loaves do you have? And they say, seven. Jesus is going to bless the Gentile crowds Through his Jewish disciples, just as God had promised Abraham, I am going to bless all nations through your seed. This is just one of those little moments where the rhythms and the patterns and the images of Scripture are coming full circle. And so Jesus has compassion on them. Jesus is going to provide for them because they have a Greek need. These people will not make it home if they try to get home on their own strength. They will not make it home if they try to do it without God's provision. And so now we need to ask, do we have a need? And the answer is yes. Now, A disclaimer for this next illustration. I am not an economist. I am not a politician. Everyone here has some opinion about what needs to be done in this country to make our economy work. I'm not here to argue with you about how to make our economy work. What I'm here to do is to show us that we need God's provision. But to do that, Let's do a quick little budgeting journey. This is gonna be the budget for someone who makes $15 an hour and works 40 hours a week. And I remember just a few years ago when I was in college, the idea that you could go work at Wawa for $15 an hour was laughable. We go, whoa, that's way too much. No one's ever gonna earn that working at Wawa And now, when you go to Target and Wawa and all those, you're seeing they're starting at $15, $16, $17, $18 an hour. But let's go through and let's do a budget for someone who makes $15 an hour. If you make $15 an hour and you work 40 hours a week, that means in a year you're gonna earn $31,200. Immediately, the government comes along and says, no, that's not how much you actually have. You actually have closer to $27,000. Well, now, John Doe here needs a place to live. He's not going to get anything fancy. He's going to get a one-bedroom apartment in our immediate area, and he's looking at the prices. You could be paying um, close to $1,000, and then you're probably joining a tenant society to try to get your landlord to turn the heat back on or you're paying like $1,500 and you have a nice entry into your own apartment, it's uh, your own private door, okay, that's nice, let's cut it in the middle and say that he's spending $1,200 a month on rent for a one-bedroom apartment, approximately 53% of his income. That means that John Doe is now down to $14.4 thousand um, dollars. Oh no, sorry, that's 14.4k a year. He is now down to $12.6000. Well, now that he's gotten a place to live, he needs food to eat. And so he is going to do a low-cost food plan. The USDA estimates that a low-cost food plan is going to cost about $325 a month. And some of you are going, "Oh, I wish." That's 3.9k a year. Okay, so now After you've paid for food, well, he has to have a way to get to his job in transportation. This is the area of the budget that you have the most control and flexibility in. You could take public transportation and save a lot, but many of us drive a car. It may not be a new car, but it works. We're going to budget in $500 a month for repairs, insurance, car payments, gas, and everything else related to transportation. And I see Pastor Dan laughing at me going, you're lowballing that. I wish I could pay that much a month in transportation. I, I wanna be fair, I wanna give this a good shot, okay? Trying to make it work here. That's $6,000 a year. You're now down to 2.7K left in your budget. Well, let's say that John Doe is a Christian and goes to church. He was raised to tithe on the gross on the 31.2K he started, but he's done the math and he knows he can't. And so in faith, he gives 2.7K to tithe at 10%. Oh, that's what we have left. Ah, I forgot something though. He probably wants heat and electricity. So we have to budget in $150 a month for utilities, and we're now down, you need to borrow $1,800 to make your budget work, if you are working $15 an hour, 40 hours a week. And that's if everything in your life goes perfectly. You were never sick, your job remains steady, there's no layoffs, there are no unexpected expenses or trips. On paper, if you are relying on your own strength, even on paper, this is not going to work. But it's not just the people whose lives don't work on paper that need God's provision, it's all of us. This just clearly illustrates how precarious our position is because there's no wiggle room in this budget. But even in our lives and people who have set aside, we're hoping the banks stay healthy. We're hoping that there are no car accidents. We're hoping that there's no multi-million dollar medical bills. We're hoping there's no natural disasters. There are so many things in life that are outside of our control that we need, need, need to remember God and to rely on his provision. Just like these people in the crowd in Mark chapter 8, they are not going to get home unless Jesus feeds them. And if we cannot provide for even our own physical needs, the things that we can see, the things that we can touch, the things that we can quantify, how can we expect to provide for our spiritual needs? We are completely reliant on God at every step of the journey. Moving on, let's look at God's provision because that budget. Budget is a little dismal. And when you look at it, it's like, where's the hope? Well, here is the hope. Starting in verse six, he told the crowd to sit down on the ground. And when he had taken the seven loaves and given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to distribute to the people. And they did so. They had a few small fish as well. He gave thanks to them also and told the disciples to distribute them. The people ate and were satisfied. The people ate and were satisfied. God's provision satisfies. And this is what we need to latch onto, and this is what we need to be looking for. Psalm 34, eight tells us to taste and see that the Lord is good, It is in these moments of great need that we are able to taste and see that the Lord is good. For these people in the crowd, there is no hiding the fact that they are lost without Christ. They are completely reliant on him to fulfill their needs. And because they are completely reliant on him when their needs are met, they know it was not them. No one in the crowd pulled out more bread. No one in the crowd opened a bakery and provided for everyone. It was Christ providing a miracle. And so it is in our moments of greatest need that we can taste and see if the Lord is good. And my encouragement to you is don't let your Christianity become stale. Don't let Christianity turn into this rhythm, this religious rhythm of going to church on Sunday. Maybe you go to a small group during the week and you say, hey, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing fine. How are you doing? Fine. You reading your Bible? Yeah, I'm reading my Bible. You reading your Bible? Uh, Some days no, sometimes yes. Instead, let your Christianity be a continuing story of how God has provided for your needs. When Pastor Matt preached on the feeding of the 5,000, he brought up Psalm 78, and I thought that this was such a wonderful psalm to parallel these two passages. I wanted to look back real quick at Psalm 78 because the disciples forget, and in a few minutes, we're gonna see that the religious leaders also forget. But in Psalm 78, this Forgetting is not something new, but it is something that has been going on for a long time. Psalm 78, the verses 1 through 4 is like a thesis statement for the psalm, telling us what, is going to, what this psalm is supposed to do. We read, my people hear my teaching, listen to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth with a parable. I will utter hidden things, things from old, things we have heard and known, things our ancestors have told us. We will not hide them from their descendants. We will tell the next generation the praiseworthy deeds of the Lord, his power and the wonders he has done. So that is what Psalm 78 is setting out to do, to tell the mighty, praiseworthy deeds of the Lord. And then we have a very long psalm listing out different deeds that the Lord has done, but from the point of view of what has been forgotten. And we see this in verses 11 to 16, and I thought that this one was very poignant here. Verse 11, they forgot what he had done, the wonders he had shown them. He did miracles in their sight of their ancestors in the land of Egypt, in the region of Zoan. He divided the sea and led them through. He made the waters stand up like a wall. He guided them with the cloud by day and with the light from the fire all night. He split the rocks in the wilderness and he gave them water as abundant as the seas. He brought streams out from a rocky crag and he made waters flow down like rivers. God has done wonderful deeds, but the disciples forgot. Jesus fed the 5,000, but the disciples forgot. Now, the disciples aren't the worst forgetters though because they're just forgetful. There's another class of forgetful people, and that is those who are rebelliously forgetful. We see in Mark chapter 8, going into the final section of this, uh, verse 9, verse 10, Jesus got into the boat with his disciples and went to the region of Dalmanutha. Now Dalmanutha, according to the Lindell Scott Jones Greek lexicon, is an unidentified place near the Sea of Galilee. And scholars and commentaries don't quite know. The closest thing I could find was a 2013 report from some archaeologists in the UK who had gone there, and they uncovered a trade city. And what they found in this city was that the architectural remains and pottery suggest that Jewish residents and a polytheistic religion coexisted together within a community, Pottery pieces dating as early as the 2nd century BCE also show the town was prosperous and could have survived for centuries. So that's our best guess so far on where um, Dao Manutha is. But what I want you to latch on to, and what works at least for my sermon here, is that the Jewish community was there. And so here Jesus is leaving behind the Gentile community. He hops in his boat and he sails over back to his people, the people who are supposed to hail him as king. And what happens? Well, verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to question Jesus, to test him. They didn't want to know something new. They didn't want to get to know their creator more. They wanted to test him. And they asked him for a sign from heaven. He sighed deeply and said, "Why does this generation ask for a sign?" Truly, I tell you, no sign will be given it." Then he left them. Uh, then he left them, got back into the boat and crossed to the other side. Again. His own people didn't just forget what he had done, but they did it with the mindset of rebellion, of testing God. And here's the thing. If Jesus had given them a sign, it wouldn't have worked. I've had friends in my own life who have said, I will believe in God if he was to write it in the sky, in the clouds. If he was saying, God is here. If he was to put it in the stars and rearrange the stars, I would believe in God, so why doesn't God do that? Perhaps you have a friend or a family member who has said something similar. I'm here to give you some bad news is that even if God was to do that, they still wouldn't believe because they don't love Christ. We see in Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives a parable about the rich man and the beggar Lazarus. And Jesus says in here that um, the rich man was separated. He did not go to paradise. Lazarus did go to paradise. And the rich man is so concerned for his brothers and he says, um, Jesus, just send Lazarus back to go and warn my brothers. And Jesus says to them, or not Jesus, the angel says to them, uh, if we can advance the slide, please. Yeah. One more. Okay. Okay And Abraham said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. And what is more in Romans 1, verses 18 to 20, we see that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. All of us All humans have had the prophets. They have had the scribes. They have had scripture. They even have creation itself testifying to God's indivisible attributes. But what do we do? We suppress the truth in our wickedness. C.S. Lewis has a great quote for this. I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen not only because I see it, but because I see everything by it. When you love Christ, you see the signs and you go, it's him, it's the son of God. But if you don't love Christ, if you are rebellious against Christ, then when you see the signs, you go, "Eh, it's a parlor trick. And Jesus knows this with the Pharisees. He knows that no sign will convince them that even rising from the dead, as he is going to do, would not convince them. And rise from the dead, he does, because he sees that we have a need, and that need is not just for money, to earn food, and to get a roof over our heads. But he sees that we have such a deep need that we cannot make up for ourselves each one of us has sinned and the wages of sin is death each one of us is going to die and you need a way to come back from the dead if you're going to keep living but then once you come back from the dead each one of us needs to restore our relationship with god because God is just, God is holy. God is justly opposed against evil. You would not want to live with a God who is okay with evil. And so, what he does is Jesus pays for our sin, restoring our relationship with God. And then, by the power of his spirit, he rises from the dead. I want to go back real quick to Psalm 78, just real quick, because I feel like this one is very poignant when talking about the Pharisees. In Psalm 78, verse 17 through 20, I think we clearly see their attitude. But they continued to sin against him, rebelling in the wilderness against the Most High. They willfully put God to the test by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God and they said, can God really spread a table in the wilderness? True, he struck the rock and water gushed out. Streams flowed abundantly. But can he also give us bread? Can he supply meat for his people? Jesus answers this with a resounding yes but the Pharisees will have nothing to do with it. And so, church, as we come before our God, before Christ who has died for us and who has saved us, we need to remember what he has done. We need to remember the signs that he has already given us instead of demanding a new one. If you are looking for a very practical way to do this, write a list. And we need to remember, because this is going to increase our thankfulness. How can we be thankful for what God has done if we do not remember what God has done? It's going to strengthen our faith, because if we remember the trials that God has brought us through, well, then he can do it again in this current trial, and he's promised to be there in all future trials. And it's going to enhance our evangelism. Because if you want people to come to Christ, they need to hear the stories about how God is working and what God is doing. And when we have these stories about how God has provided and how God is working in our lives, there's no arguing with that. So if you want a very practical way to do this this week, write your own Psalm 78. Go back through your life and write down what God has done to get you to this point. Where have you been? Where have been those moments in your life where you have had no hope except that Christ would provide? Write those down. And this is important not just for you yourself, but if you write it down, that's something that you can hand off to your kids and to your grandkids. And the generations that come after you can learn of God's faithfulness because you can testify to his goodness. But when you're writing that list, don't forget the cross. Because one of God's greatest signs of his love and provision is that he gave his only son for you on the cross. And so when you're writing this list, write down the son of God, the creator of the universe took my place and paid for my sins and then rose from the dead and I can have hope because everyone who believes, who believes in their heart that Jesus is Lord and confesses with their mouth that he is Lord, everyone who does that has the hope of eternal life. So remember what God has done. Remember the signs, don't ask for them. Remember what Christ has done and be satisfied. Let's pray. Father, you have done so much. You have provided so much and we have forgotten so much. So Lord, today move your spirit in us that we may remember the deeds that you have done that we may see your goodness and we may testify about it to ourselves and to a future generations. May we know your goodness and may we share these stories with one another so that we may all may be encouraged. And Lord, may we know that our debt is paid, the debt to death, the debt to sin is paid by your son. I pray for all of those who hear this, that they may come to know your son then they may come to know you and they may have eternal life through that. In his name we pray, amen.